Thank you, Norman, for the uh, introduction. It's a pleasure for me to be here at uh, Loma Linda. Loma Linda has uh, some fond memories for me. Uh, it was here where I had my honeymoon. Now you may say, you know, what is that? You know, a honeymoon in Loma Linda. Don't you have anything else to do? But, uh, you know, that's just it. We didn't have any more time. Uh, we got married in uh, the Washington, New Hampshire church, the first Seventh-day Adventist church on the East Coast. And it was uh, in, towards the middle of uh, September. And uh, we were, my wife and I were both impressed to, to recite our the theological and ministerial uh, education. We should also balance it with the uh, healing message of health. So we uh, applied to the School of Health. And a few days after we got married, the School of Health, uh, now it is called the School of Public Health, but there it was the School of Health, opened its doors for us. And so we could just have a wonderful honeymoon drive of five days from the East Coast to the West Coast and right start in the books. That was our honeymoon. And uh, we have ever been on the go. Presently, my wife is addressing the women in Oregon, and I'm addressing here at Edmund Hope. And so it's absolutely a fascinating life for us. And uh, so we spent here two years here at Loma Linda, and I tell you, we really enjoyed it. We didn't have any student organization at the time, and I'm pleased that you have here Edmund Hope. In fact, uh, we had an Advent hope with Andrews, but uh, uh, there is still a hope. I'm not quite sure where the organization is. But I'm glad that here is a group of people that are interested in the second coming of Jesus. And you know, that's very, very important. The second Advent. Now, I heard from Norman that uh, you're all interested in the sanctuary message. And I heard that my colleague, uh, Dr. Davidson, uh, spoke here a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, uh, you wonder, you know, and then the next week you have a living, uh, a complete sanctuary. And other people have been talking about the sanctuary. I, I talked to, I asked myself the question, you know, what else is there to see about the sanctuary? You know, what else? And uh, so I prayed and prayed about it, you know, what should I do, what should I do? And, uh, you know, the Lord impressed me with something. In fact, this morning, this morning when I was working on my sermon for tomorrow morning, uh, at the last moment when I left my home, the Lord impressed me with something that I've never talked about. I knew it all. I, I, I didn't talk about it because, uh, you know, it's a message that generally people don't are not waiting for you. You see, you have sometimes, you know, you don't want to speak about it, you know, you remember? Yeah. And, uh, and ever since I have been working from this morning, when I got up in the plane at 6.15, until I landed here at 1 o'clock, and for us it was already 4 o'clock, and uh, I have been busy working, and I think I have just the message for tomorrow morning. And so I thank the Lord for this. And it is also on Yom Kippur. You know, just Dr. Davis is pleased, you know, a whole five sermon on Yom Kippur. How can you ever, how can you excel that? You can't. So I had to pray to the Lord to give me another message, you see. 
And, uh, and the sanctuary is extremely important. Now, you may say, you know, the sanctuary is so important. What about the rest of Christianity? You know, if this is so important, why don't they know it? You know, have you, have you ever thought about it? You know, this little group of Adventists, you know, a speck in the world. And they have the sanctuary message and the rest of not, you know. Lord, what are you doing? You know, because I mean, if, if you were the Lord, and the sanctuary was the most important message, wouldn't you like that to everybody else you know it? And so tonight, I'm going to show you how the rest of Christianity lost it. And how we got it. You know, we had never think about it, you know. And in fact, because so few people know about it, and if you look at all the scholarly material that is published today, you don't find any reference to the uniqueness that we have. And then you wonder, you know, why? Is it really the way we see it? Is it really the truth? And people have been wandering and wandering and pondering, and finally they had given it up and left the church. Yeah. I mean to believe something that hardly anybody of this of Christianity know about it. And people look at you and you think a cult, you know, now maybe not in Loma Linda because you have quite an impression. Present. When I was born in a country, the Netherlands, you know, where people when I when I told my my, my family that I was going to be the Seventh-day Adventist, my they felt I was ready for a mental institution. And my mother didn't even dare to share it with any of her friends and relatives. Yeah. To become a Seventh-day Adventist was, was, was the worst of all. You know, together with Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon. Anyway, the Lord has blessed me and I'm still in the message. And uh, after resisting for many, many years, just before my mother died, she finally gave her heart to the Lord. So I have something to look forward to when the Lord comes. And uh, together with my family. Because it would be tragic if my whole family would be lost. You know. And uh, so what I decided then here to share you something here in regard to our movement. And uh, let us pray. Lord Send your Holy Spirit. Baptize us with that Spirit. That we may be enlightened. And understand how you have given us this message. Father. Our minds are slow. Sometimes foggy. But now we need your Holy Spirit more than ever before. And therefore we thank you for giving your Holy Spirit to us. To understand to speak and to share in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here then, uh, and of course, you know, last week you celebrated October 22, 1844, right? Great festival here. And, uh, you know, have you, you know, it's interesting. I have, I'm teaching this. And we went, and I spent the last five weeks showing the importance of 1844 and whatever. And a number of those students were preaching and go to churches and share it. And this 
beginning of this week, I said, you know, how was last Sunday? Because it is very rare. Once in so many years that October 32 falls on a Sabbath. It's a very rare occasion. And not one of my students who's preached touch the subject. So you wonder, you know, after so many weeks of teaching. Yeah. It's one thing, friends, to understand this. It's another way to live it. You know, you, you know what I mean? And this is, I hope to share, you know, Beside the doctrinal value, I hope to share experiences that, that, that make an indelible impression on your mind. I've teached so many years, but I have seen so few. Oh yes, they have it all here. But live it. It's a different level, friends. It's a different level. And specifically tomorrow morning, if you are not afraid to come, we go into the depth of Yom Kippur, as the Bible said, the people afflicted their souls. You know, what does it mean? What does it mean? Are we doing this? You know? It's another way to think about three and a half thousand years in the desert with Moses, you know, whatever. But what does it mean today, afflicting our souls? And so here then, the rise of the Advent movement and the message of the sanctuary for today. Now we have to put this historically, and that is my privilege as a historian, church historian, to put it up, the unsealing of the book of Daniel in the time of the end. And, uh, and so this is the whole scene in the light of this. Opening of the sixth seal. Now if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation 6, and you know the Revelation 6, what it's all about the seals, right and if you see the seals the first seal you know what do you see here a white horse you know, victory, victory, victory and of course we have interpreted this as the early church, the apostolic church victory after victory but then, the conflict on earth for sin, the red horse you know, sin comes in blood shed, martyrs here the period of the martyrs the third seal, verse 5, come and see, there's a black horse. And there, you know, it seemed that, that food is very scarce. The word of God is very scarce. You get apostasy coming in. And then, the fourth seal, widespread death on earth. What do you see there? The pale horse. And the horse was given power to kill, a, you know, a fourth of the earth, and to kill with a sword, with hunger and death, and the beast of the earth. And then you see in verse 9 the cry of martyrs, Lord, how long? How long? Hold you to, until you judge and avenge our blood of those who are on the earth. Here you find the millions and millions. I just read a report not too long ago of the Catholic Church, the Vatican Commission on the Inquisition. And they looked at all the evidence and they said, whatever has said in the past about the Inquisition, I think the facts have greatly overstated and greatly exaggerated. Yes, some mistakes were made, and here and there people died. But uh, this we should relegate to the fable, friends. 
ye are the cry of the martyrs. How long? How long until you judge? And then what do we see then in verse 12? The cosmic signs of the judgment. What have you here first? A great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and hair, and the moon became like blood, and then the stars fell from heaven. And here then is the whole thing. You know, the, the celestial signs. And Jesus says, and you find the same in Matthew 24, and, uh, you know, witness of earth, sun, and moon. Matthew 24, it says, you know, here you have the signs. The signs came after the period of great tribulation that uh, had to do with the martyrs. And what did Jesus say then in, verse tw- in chapter 24? In verse t- chapter 24 of the book of Matthew, Jesus says here, Now learn, in verse 32, 24, Now learn the parable, the fig tree, when its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So when you see all these things, you know that it's near, very near, the doors. So all those things indicate that the coming is near. And Christians who lived at that particular time saw the Lisbon earthquake of 7055 and the dark day of 7080 as signs. In fact, I have a book in my office written one year after the great earthquake by the Church of England calling upon all the people in England to fast and pray in regard to this event that took place a year earlier. And what did he do? To fast and pray for what? That we may be ready for the coming of the Lord because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And now who knows about those things? Yes. Yes, it is in the... At least uh, the part that I have Xeroxed. It was one uh, very rare book and finally I got and I Xeroxed it and it gives you an account of every country in Europe including Greenland and the islands of the Caribbean what took place as a result of this earthquake. Everything was measured there. But who knows today? Yeah. At that particular time people thought it is there but new generation comes and they don't know what the Pharaoh did in the past. You know, those who don't know the past are gullible to repeat the mistakes of the past. You know, Ellen White says very clearly, we have nothing to fear for the future unless we forget the past. And how many know about the rise of a movement and how God taught us step by step? You know, I, I, for me, it's a very privilege to teach those things because it revives me every year every time that I share about it and so here then this is the first one then in Revelation 11 7 what do we see there we see that the rise you know when the witnesses they were prophesying in sackcloth and ashes the witnesses are the new and the old testament you know they were testifying there during the 12 or 60 years and at the end then they finished and when they killed them during the time of the evolution, well then, here that beast was rising out of the bottomless pit. The whole French Revolution here is beautifully portrayed. And, and you know, why? Rise of modern atheism during the French Revolution. And God had a specific plan for this. Because Europe was mostly 
dominated by Catholic powers in the south and the east and in the north the Protestant nations and they were powerless against the Catholic nations and then you get the rise of the French Revolution an atheistic power that was so against any form of religion and of course the picture of religion was completely distorted because they had it because of Catholicism in France Catholicism in France banned the truth you get the absolutism of Louis XIV and all the other things, the oppression of the masses and it was just a time bomb and when it exploded there was a tremendous massacre and the world shuddered but this brought the unsealing of the 1200 year prophecy the deadly wound of the beast in 1798 and it was only an atheistic power in the religion of the time that could destroy and fight Catholicism it's incredible and uh, every year when I go to Rome we, 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 we trace the, the revolution because you know it's, it's really fantastic incredible in 1797 the Pope and Napoleon made an agreement and concluded that everything would be over and that they, they had peace and everything seemed to be fine and suddenly overnight Napoleon sent his general to take the Pope captive and put him in exile as a fulfillment of this prophecy I have a book and a book in the library there it's in French it is written by the uh, the Secretary of State of the Vatican at that particular time and he bemoans it. He says, how can it? We appease it. We give them everything what they wanted and whatever. And why do they do this? And why did they abolish papal government? Because that was what happened in 1798. On the Capitolina. Where Daniel Bacchet read the declaration of the abolition of uh, the papacy exactly 1260 years after Justinian implemented the, uh, his code of law in, in Rome. But you know the thing is, you know, prophecy doesn't guess. Prophecy doesn't guess. Prophecy knows. And if you go on my tour, you know, I I I, I tell I, I have stories after stories I can tell you about this. It's an incredible thing. But uh, you know, I mean, time is going on. You know, so I should not lose myself in all those nice providential stories. Maybe another time. The Pope's captivity by the atheistic power of France, and then the arrival of the time of the end and the beginning of the unsealing of the book of Daniel and so then God gives light and light and light on this and for what reason because God is now preparing the world for the most important event between Calvary and the second advent and that most important event is Jesus Christ starting the final judgment in 1844 so God is now trying to prepare the world now how does he do it because of the fulfillment sign the sun moon and stars the French revolution the captivity of the Pope all of those what do we see then an increase of knowledge about prophecy progressive revelation you know we see more and more and as a result it stimulated the prophetic study about the second advent among Protestants because Catholics remember I mean they were not allowed to look at the Bible you know, that is forbidden. So the Protestants delved into it and they got more and more excited 
And, and as a result, the interest now shifted because of the 1798, the interest shifted from Daniel 7 to Daniel 8. Because this was still an unquestioned. What, is, uh, what are the 2300 days? What is this? And so they studied it, they studied it, studied it. Throughout Christianity, the focus was on Daniel 8, 14, up to 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And the result was a rise of a worldwide 19th century movement. It called the Second Advent Awakening. It took place in Europe, in fact, uh, during my research uh, for my doctoral work, I, uh, I, 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 and, and my, my thesis is dealing with the, the foundations of, of our movement, the biblical foundations. And so uh, that was really an incredible experience. I mean, how I could write for a non-Adventist university the biblical foundations of Adventism. I mean, normally it doesn't happen unless the Lord is in it, you know? Think about the providences in one's life. It's incredible. And maybe you have read the book, uh, Foundations of the Seventh-day Adventist Message and Mission. You can get it at the ABC and whatever. And, uh, and there you see that it was throughout. And then, I, in my research, I discovered the name of an individual from Holland, Hans Peter. And uh, he was the royal curator of the, of the royal library in The Hague. So I went, in all of my trips, uh, I went to The Hague seeing, you know, if there was any evidence. And you know what I discovered? Over 20 books written by this man about 1844 and about the sanctuary and about prophecies. It's amazing. You'll find the same in Germany. The same in England, you see. All of this. Now, for you don't find the Scandinavian because the, there it was totally forbidden. But what did, did the Lord do? The Lord works through children. Eight, nine, ten years. You cannot lock them up, you know, in prison. And they got inspired and they proclaimed the good news about the judge. You see how the Lord works? And so, friends, uh, even if this message is not known, and even if our church basically is in a Laodicean state, I know that God has his people left and right. That he will inspire and they will carry the message till the end. You believe that? And the fact that you are here, you're here for a specific purpose. Remember, you know, not simply being entertained by sermons, you know, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Everything that you hear, you're responsible for. So you can still leave, you know, if you feel it is. Uh, <laughs> but the more we hear, the more we are responsible for. And you know, it is no problem only if you have the Holy Spirit in our heart. If the Holy Spirit is in our heart, with all the responsibilities, said, Lord, can we save? Can we serve you? Can we serve you? It's a delight, friends. It's a privilege. What do you say, friends? A privilege. And so here then, what do we see there? It affected the Christian world, but with mixed success. The only long-lasting success was here. You know why? Why do you think it was here? Protestant America, there was something unique. It was the religious and political climate in the United States was so unique in the rest of the world. There was religious freedom due to the church-state separation. And nowhere else in the world you had it. Even among the Protestant nations. You needed to be a Lutheran to have the full freedom. 
And if you were a Reformed Calvinist, you didn't have the freedom. If you go to the Calvinist, if you go to Geneva, and you preach the Lutheran gospel, hey, you better take up your books you know, in, your, in your suitcase. Or be quiet. You know, that was it. No full freedom of worship. And so that is the reason why the Advent movement not could explode there. But here, you had it. Same time political freedom because America was a republic, not a monarchy. You see? A government by the people, for the people. While in Europe it was always absolutism. Absolutism. And so here, you know, that is... Then you get prophetic discussions on Daniel 8, 14. Conflicting views about the time of the end. The second, the little horn. The sanctuary and cleansing. So every denomination was studying this prophecy. And then... Uh, the birth of the Second Advent Movement and its inspirational leader became William Miller. Now let's see here, in regard to this. What did the other churches, what were the views here? Both in the Old World and New View, New World. If you go to a Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, the four volumes, the mighty volumes, uh, there you find in the fourth volume a whole list of over a hundred individuals important individuals from the various churches and uh, what did they do how did they see the 2300 days of Daniel 8 they had 2300 years here's the perspective the, se- the, uh, the, the beginning of this period that is from 457 BC to 453 you know there were some differences in the chronology but basically that was true then the end of the 490 years was in the year 33 to 37 that was the ballpark and then the end of the 2300 was between 1843 and 1847. That was the general understanding of, I would say, 95% of the churches and the leaders here in this country. And so, you know, they are very close to us, right? Very, very close to us. And uh, what were the views on the cleansing of the sanctuary, you see? Now, some believe that uh, this is the beginning of the millennium millennium of peace on earth and there are many today you know, that feel that first you get the millennium and then the Christ will come the fall of Mohammedanism because at that time Israel, Palestine was completely occupied by the Islam and so by the Turks and they expected, predicted that the Islam would be eliminated the cleansing of Jerusalem Jerusalem would be a free city at the same time the return of the Jews because that, that idea has always been there throughout Christian uh, uh, era that the Jews would come back before Christ would come in Palestine and they would accept Christianity and whatever many speculated about that other ones said the church from uh, cleansing of the church from its apostasy or the purging of the church from papal influences the reestablishment of the true worship but you know when 1843 1844 5, 6, 7 came was any of the predictions fulfilled? No, no. What was the result in the 1840s? All expositors were dis- disappointed. All churches that had any view on this were, dis- were mistaken. But you take the Encyclopedia of Christianity or, you know, the Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge or whatever you can, and you look about that time, and the only one that are singled out as being fools are the Millerite Adventists or the Adventists. Yes. Interesting, isn't it? 
they seem to have, you know, suddenly uh, amnesia, they, they get the Alzheimer's. Suddenly they forget about all those things. And the Adventists are singled out. I listened to some of the programs uh, around the millennium. You know, the, uh, the 2000, you know, and they warned, you know, the perspective at times, like the Adventists did, like the Adventists. Friends, they all said time. They all. But why were we so singled out? Because our message was so much transforming. Because we said, Jesus comes. And what are you going to do when Jesus comes? There's no more repentance. You see? So therefore, when our we proclaimed this message, it was very, very powerful. And so here then, Jesus, to get to, to clear this confusion, Jesus chose a human leader for the Second Advent movement. Here he is, William Miller. Advent is most prominent student of prophecy. God's choice for inspirational leader of the great Second Advent movement of the 19th century. Because God could not work with all the other ones because they were so settled in their meaning, so stifled that nothing could be done with those people. Now, why did God choose William Miller? Was he perfect? No, he was not perfect. He made mistakes. But when God looked on planet Earth, William Miller was the best person available. You don't need to be perfect in all your ways. But are you the best person available right now? Whatever you want. You know? To carry our message. For a world that is soon anticipating the most terrible destruction that's coming on planet Earth. Can you imagine, you know, some of your colleagues and friends that yeah, you work with? Can you see them suffering in the seven last plagues? And then they said, hey, Mary, John, you knew it. And you kept your mouth you know, what will it do to you? I would cringe. Cringe. And so, William Miller then here. Why did God chose him? You know, this is the quality, the character quality that the Lord wants us to have. His experience with Jesus and his word. When brought almost to despair, God by his Holy Spirit opened my eyes. And I saw Jesus as a friend and my only help. And the word of God as my perfect rule of duty. What do you say? Isn't that beautiful? You see, God is looking for men and women who, in their, who see their needs and who cry out to the Lord, help me. And you think that the Lord will just wait? No. He will give all what you need for His glory. He will not give all what you want. All what you need. Do you need anything more? No, really not. No. And so here then the result of Miller's Bible study. The discovery of the significance of the 2300 days. Now this understanding of this prophecy. If you give any Bible study. Unless people understand this. They will never understand the sanctuary. And many of our own people that came in through quick evangelism 
never understood, really, the prophecy of Daniel 8.14. They were stimulated by the multimedia, the flashing lights, and the music and whatever, and they came into the churches, and, you know, it was not anymore the excitement. And then a few months later, there was another evangelist from the Baptist church. And they got an invitation, they came, hey Mike, this is it. And they go from one church to another church. Remember at the general conference, they mentioned that one third of those being baptized are not anymore present after five years. Did they really understand the message? You know, think about this. And so here then, the foundation of Adventism is the prophecy of Daniel 8. 4, 8. This is the key. Daniel 8, verse 1 to 8, what did the ram and the goat represent? You Bible scholars here, what did the ram represent? Medo Persia, the goat. Greece, Alexandria, in the first horn. So Medo Persia, Greece. Now, what about the little horn? Yes, yes, we had. Rome pagan and papal as the reformers did, many of the reformers. Today you take any book, any commentary that you can find that was printed in the 20th century or the 21st century and you can't find it anymore. The counter-reformation of Rome has triumphed and, and the whole world is, is, is split into two sections. Futurism, the conservative, the evangelical, and preterism, that the prophecies are all in the past, by the more liberal oriented people. And friends, we are the only ones, and only if you see Rome as pagan and papal, you can understand about the sanctuary and the pollution of the sanctuary. We thought then at that time that it was the earth, and here we see with multimedia, the multimedia, you know, is just the same. Except that it's only one picture there. We haven't evolved that much, you know. The earth, what was the cleansing of the sanctuary? We thought the cleansing of the sanctuary by fire. And that is what most, uh, nearly everybody understood. So that is what we uh, did. And what, the, what, what is the cleansing of the, of the sanctuary in the judgment? When is it? At the end of the 2300 years, about 1843 and 1844. And the result now is Jesus launches the first angel's message. Because Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, talk about calling to repentance because of what? For the hour of his judgment has come. And so this then became the rise of the first angel's message. And how did it impact Miller? Miller studied this first for two years. And then he said, let me just study it over again. The Lord gave another 18 years to study this and then he saw the great ignorance about the soon return of Jesus and it stirred his spirit and sense of mission here's what you see in early writings page 229 Miller looked at the churches and saw that they were corrupt they had taken their affections from Jesus and had placed them on the world they were seeking for worldly honor instead of the honor which comes from above grasping for worldly riches instead of laying up the treasures in heaven he could see hypocrisy darkness and death everywhere his spirit was stirred within him God called him to leave his farm as he called Elijah to leave his oxen and field 
of his labor to follow Elijah. You see, it's interesting that from the coldness of others, he became excited for the Lord. You know? So therefore, friends, if you feel that some of your fellow believers or many of your fellow believers have a Laodicean attitude, what should it really stir? Spark us in our own life. It should stir us up. You know? Because we want to come to the help of the Lord. Don't we? And not because, you know, they don't get excited, you know. Let's also, you know, take a back seat. No. The Lord is looking for men and women that they carry the torch that many of us have failed to carry. You know? I tell you, I mean, I used to be an aeronautical engineer. And in some way I got this book. Our World in the Light of Prophecy. That was by uh, Spicer, one of the old titles, gone many years ago. And I read it and I read it and I read it. And the more I study it, my whole career disappeared. Because I look around and I, none of my relatives do. All my friends there who were in the world, I was sleeping in the world, they know it. They didn't know it. And when I tried to share it, they were not interested in it. And the, 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 the more people were not interested in the, the, the hotter I got. Something needed to be done. Why should I spend the rest of my life, you know, working in the airplane industry instead of, you know, doing something for the Lord? And so, we started again for scratch. Zero, you know, and, and the Lord didn't disappoint. And I'm still excited about it. Because the older I get, the clearer I see the fulfillment of prophecy all around me. The Adventist missionary papers were published, Signs of the Times, the Advent Herald, the Midnight Cry. How did it affect Miller's mission? The birth friends of the Elijah message. Thousands were led to embrace the truth preached by William Miller. And the servants of God were raised up in the spirit and power of Elijah to proclaim the message. Friends, you and I have the Elijah message. And what does the Elijah message do? It unites families. It brings children and parents together and does away with all generation gaps. Wonderful. If that is in your family. The birth of the John the Baptist message like John, the forerunner of Jesus, those who preached this solemn message felt compelled to lay the axe at the root of the tree and call upon man to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And the birth of the judgment our message, as the Spirit of God rested upon them, they helped to sound the cry, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of the judgment is come. Early writings, page 233. Isn't this just something you know? What took place at that particular time? And you and I are carrying the same message. Wonderful. Wonderful to be selected and responded to the Elijah message. And the Elijah message, what does it do? It brings people to a decision. Either for or against the Lord. The John the Baptist message. To prepare the way of the Lord. To prepare... But in order to prepare the way of the Lord, our hearts need to be prepared. And if our hearts are prepared, friends, the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit come into our hearts. 
and we run with the message no matter what people say even if you've never knocked on doors or never gone to people this message takes away all fear and gives you a holy bowl you believe that? absolutely and so here the success of the first angel's message this message has a profound impact on the people whenever the message was given it moved the people sinners repented wept prayed for forgiveness and those whose lives had been marked with honor, dishonesty were anxious to make restitution parents felt the deeper solicitude for their children those who received the message labored with their uncomforted friends and relatives and with their souls bowed with weight of the solemn message warned the entreated them to prepare for the coming of the son of man this soul purifying work led the affections away from worldly things to a consecration never before experienced see now if you read William Miller's sermon you may not really get excited you know we would like to have this light material here a story a few bible texts another story you know this kind of you see the bible text after bible text after bible text today we would say how can you ever get through the book yeah and that was William Miller what he wrote but in some way when he spoke those words people received the anointing of the Holy Spirit they were changed and pubs and barrooms were changed into halls of prayer and fasting friends this is only 170 years ago you think it still can happen today it can friends are we available are we willing to do this and so the advent expectations in the autumn of 1844 were here as follows you see there the 2300 years began in the seventh year of Artaxerxes in the year four, uh, 457 sorry I need to change it 457 and the cross was then in 31 AD spring Christ's crucifixion and in 1844 in the fall Christ was to come out of the most holy place of, or heaven to return to the earth to cleanse the sanctuary on the 10th day of the 7th month which is October 22, 1844 so we expected Christ to come out of the most holy place because we thought with many other Christians that at the ascension Christ went into the most holy place or heaven did that a work of atonement and when that was finished he came down back here so that is what we thought but we had to change our mind it was a disappointment and now I introduce you to the great disappointment here is Edson's testimony he says our expectations were raised high and thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told 12 at midnight the day had then passed and our disappointment became a certainty our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before it seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison and we wept and wept till the day dawned have you ever wept a whole night from midnight to morning I mean this is crushing and he goes on in his manuscript oh lord are you there have we have we believed in cunning device fables is there no pearly gates is there no golden city yeah those people had put the last penny in this movement and everything and, and the, the opponents criticized it but they couldn't give a better explanation except ridicule 
And so there it was. Now, Jesus reveals his closing work. While they were crying out, one of the most sublime celestial events took place. Christ is there, changing his final ministry and beginning the final judgment. Remember the martyrs crying out, Lord, 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 when do you avenge? When do you avenge? You see? Then you get the signs and the sun and the stars. And after that, the judgment begins. You see, see the whole biblical chronology beautifully there. And so then, the prayer meeting led to the solution of the disappointment. Edson's early morning experience on October 23, 1844, I began to feel that there might be light and help for us in our present distress. I said to some of my brethren, let us go to the barn. We entered the granary and shut the doors about us and bowed before the Lord and we prayed earnestly, for we felt our necessity. He wrote this in a manuscript that we have at the University of Andrews University. Here at Edson's prayer meeting, we continued in earnest prayer until the witness of the Spirit was given that our prayer was accepted and that light should be given, our disappointment be explained and made clear and satisfactory. Now what is so unique in this prayer meeting? What he write down? There's something very unique that we generally don't do. You see, they continue to pray until what? Until the witness of the Spirit was given. Now, how often do we, if we go at all to a prayer meeting, but if we do our own prayers, you know, we have difficulty, we shoot a prayer up and we hope for the best, right? We hope for the best. But resting in your knees and crying out to the Lord until you have the assurance, it is well with your soul. I will give you answer. Isn't it tremendous? That is the prayer power that we need. What are you saying? And so that is the basis here. And so then new light from the sanctuary. And so he is now going to encourage some of his friends. He doesn't take the normal route along the road because maybe he meets one of the neighbors. And he said, hey Edson, you didn't go up yet? You didn't? You know, so he goes and the scroll flies over the field to his neighbors. And in midway here, and he has this account. Heaven seat open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the tenth day of the seventh month, at the end of the twenty-three hundred days, that he for the first time entered on that day the second apartment of that sanctuary, and that he had the work to perform in the most holy before coming to this earth. Now he had that, but friends, keep in mind, you know, it's a home thing to have this impression and see it, but where is it in the Bible? So he had a border living with him, that was O.R.L. Crozier, a border, and a friend, Dr. Hahn, a medical doctor, and they, this three, were studying. And they had to study over a year before they had clearly the biblical picture. Yeah? Of course, God could have given you know, even Ellen Harmon at the time. All the text and whatever. No. You find it out. You study it. You study it. And so they were studying, studying, studying. What is the sanctuary of Daniel 8, 14 and its cleansing? In the day star. Anybody has ever read the day star? 
You can get it here in the in the uh, uh, Heritage Center or whatever you call it here. Is the Heritage Center or Heritage Library or whatever? You find the same article. I have read it four, 40 times because it's quite tough, you know, to understand all the things. And nearly every sentence is a text, and you know, you, it, it gets a little heavy. But uh, a year later, one was published, Ellen White called a vision, and she says, you know, brethren. There it is, there it is. You go and read it and study it, and there is the light for our people. And so here then, it's so simple, so simple, but I tell you here, the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 is the heavenly sanctuary. The key to understand the sanctuary of Daniel, here it is. Crozier came to the conclusion that the cross of Christ is the center of prophecy. Now, that is a beautiful concept, you know. But nobody else before that had that idea. And here it is. The cross is the center here. And it says here in a prophetic period. After the cross. The Old Testament prophetic symbols must be interpreted in the light of the New Testament. New Covenant. So in other words, here's the cross. Here you see all these symbols. And then you go into the New Testament. Then the prophetic symbols need to be interpreted now. In the context of the New, new Covenant. So I give you an illustration here. It's very simple. The cross, the center of the prophecy. Here you see the timeline, you see the cross. On your left you see there the prophetic concept of the Old Testament in the Old Testament era. Literal geographical meaning. God's people in the Old Testament. Who were they? Literal Israel. Are you, are you clear? Location. Where did Israel, literal Israel live? In Palestine, the worst enemy in the Old Testament, literal Babylon, and its sanctuary. What is sanctuary? The earthly sanctuary. You see this here? All of this here, concrete Palestinian geographic. Now in the New Testament, prophetic concept, concept in the New Testament era. Spiritual universal meaning. So for example, God's people today, are they okay, still in Palestine, Israel? So where are God's people? All over the world, friends. Spiritual Israel. Clearly according to the book of Romans and Galatians. The location of spiritual Israel in Palestine? No. Where? Worldwide. It's worst enemy now. Spiritual Babylon, friends. Four chapters in the book of Revelation are, are devoted to this. And its sanctuary is heavenly sanctuary. You get the message? So, if you apply this now, Christ's death as the center of prophecy explains Daniel 8, 14. And none of the great men of this world, exegetes, interpreters, know this. And yet it is so simple. Here it is. The cross-centered view of the cleansing of the sanctuary at the end of the 2300 days. What is it? What is the new covenant sanctuary? What is it? Heaven. Hebrews 8.2 says, Christ is what? A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. It's there. So if you keep that in mind, when does the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 take place? What does Daniel 8.17 tell? Look in your Bible. 
What does it say there? It's very important. Here's the key to understand this. Daniel 8, 17. Where, what does your Bible say? When is the cleansing? Yes. This prophecy refers to what? The time of the end. And so here it is. Daniel 8, 14. The vision refers to the time of the end. And what is the existence of the sanctuary in the time of the end? Where is it? In heaven. Are you with me? You see, this is really not that difficult. You don't need to go to Emory University to understand it. But you're welcome if you come to us. I don't try to discourage you, but you don't need it. Conclusion, Daniel 8.14 must refer to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. You see how simple it is? Here it is. And yet the greatest minds of the world don't know it. And you know why? Because this discovery was made when? After 1844, when the whole world had written all ethnicity off. So, you know, there's a cult, there's weird, you know, whatever. And they didn't pay any attention to it. So the discovery that was made, was made when? After 1844, when we were the outcast. And there it is. And so here then, the heavenly sanctuary, this is what closure also meant, had two places. According to Hebrews 8, verse 5, and Exodus 25, verse 40. You know? It is a copy or an example of, of the real thing. And so here then, the earthly sanctuary is a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. And on the basis of that, the two places must also have a significance. And Crozier pointed out that the two places of the earthly sanctuary represent the two, pla- the, the two places of the earthly sanctuary represent the two places in the heavenly sanctuary because it was a copy. And as a result... The heavenly sanctuary must also be cleansed. Hebrews 9.23 Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens, heavens, the earthly sanctuary, uh, should be purified with these, that is the blood of animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves, the heavenly sanctuary, with better sacrifices than these. Like the earthly sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary is in need of cleansing. And so then the cleansing takes place before the second advent. After Aaron, the high priest, cleansed the sanctuary, he came out of it to bless the people. So Christ, our high priest, after having cleansed the heavenly sanctuary, will come out of it to come to the earth to bless his people. So based on this, friends, Christ's ministry has two places. Because if you have two places, you know, was there a difference between the service in the one and the other? Yeah, there was. So if the Lord clearly indicates on earth that there were two places and two phases, what about heaven? The same. Now today there is a trend to get away from the places and to talk about phases. But it really doesn't make sense to talk about phases without places. Because the idea of the phases comes out of the places. You see? And why should we be really feel funny about the structure in heaven unless we feel that we are floating on clouds there and we are just spirits around you know no paradise that Adam and Eve lived in you know the animals there that paradise is in heaven and it will come down again you believe that so there was nothing wrong with the world prior to the fall of sin 
accept the presence of sin or not. And so buildings, concrete buildings and beauty. And Dr. Davidson, I understand, had, has, has, has illustrated the beauty. Try, he has at least tried to explain it. And nobody can explain it. You know, I, I can. I just wait until they're there. And then he has two faces. So Hebrews 5, 8. The priestly ministry in the two places of the earthly sanctuary represents Christ's ministry in the two places of the heavenly sanctuary. So here it is. Phase one, the holy place. The ministry, the daily ministry symbolizes Christ's atoning ministry since AD 31. And the focus is forgiveness of sins. You'll find it clear in the book of Hebrews. Stand there. And now phase two, the most holy place. The ministry, the day of atonement ministry symbolizes Christ's atoning ministry since October 22, 1844. The focus now is Christ begins the blotting out of sins during the hour of his judgment and there is still forgiveness for the repentant sinner Amen. until the day of the Lord the day of judgment so in the Bible judgment is, begins in 1844 but has two phases the first phase is the hour of his judgment you know according to Revelation 14 verse 7 we are now in that phase and then those who have rejected this when the seven last plagues come, you get the day of the Lord. And uh, then there is no more hope. How relevant is this, friends? It solves the mystery of disappointment. Because the sanctuary is the key to unlock it. It explains the cleansing of the sanctuary, Daniel 8.14. Christ entered the most holy to cleanse the sanctuary. And so, uh, further it deepens our view of Christ's work for us. Christ's atoning ministry began at the cross. After his ascension, he began his priestly ministry in the holy place for the forgiveness of sins. And in 1844, he began the final phase of atonement, the blotting out of sin. Finally, it provides the most significant signs of the times. And what is the most significant sign of the times? The end is very near for the final judgment. The end type of the day of atonement has begun involving the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the people. And so this is it. And so the basis of Christ's sanctuary ministry, friends, is Calvary. Because of Calvary, Christ got the victory over Satan, what the book of Hebrews says, and now he's there in heaven, ministering for you and me, administering the blood to all our failures, giving grace, not only for forgiveness, but also for power. There is power in the blood. There is power in the gospel. For what? For failure? No, friends. If you stay close to the Lord, you can have victory after victory after victory. Now, of course, you look at Jesus, there's the victory. And keep on looking at Jesus. Tomorrow, I will specifically come to a very practical point. What does it mean to look at Jesus? That's a part of Yom Kippur, part of the Day of Atonement. That is one of the most unpopular things among Adventists. It's being avoided left and right. People have heard about it, people got scared about it. 
But what does it mean, looking at Jesus, afflicting my soul, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, all of the things. What does it mean? What does it mean? And you know, one of the reasons why people don't get the victory, why they don't approve in the Christian life, is because they don't have the key. How do you look at Jesus? I just close your eyes and you say, look, look at a picture. No, the Catholics have it very easy. They get an image and they kneel there and they look at Jesus and look at Jesus, you know, every day. Have, have Jesus across in the home, have the pictures and whatever. What does it mean? And there is a substantial difference between the, the past and now. After 1844, when we are living in the Day of Atonement, there is a specific, unique experience in looking at Jesus that we will discuss or share tomorrow morning. And so may God bless you. Pray for me that I have the right words to say. Because some of the things that I say tomorrow, I've never said before. But I felt it that I should share it. Maybe the last time that I hear it in a long limbo. But I'll do it. Let us pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we are impressed with your love, your beauty, your concern for us, your graciousness to us. Father, we have seen the beginning of the Advent message, that you have here a most precious message that you want to share with the whole of Christianity. And yet, unfortunately, that message was rejected. People didn't accept it. And yet, Father, we praise you that you have called us, that we can be a part of this message. May we redeem the time and share it with others, that they also can have the joy and peace that comes from the sanctuary. Oh, Father, we know that in our lives we need cleansing. And sometimes we don't know how to do those things. But we know that we need grace, moment by moment. And so, Father, bless each one of us tonight. May we reflect upon the great sacrifice at Calvary and bring us safely home here, back home in your, in your courts, where you will meet with us again tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.